0: Thanks for tuning in to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. For those of you that are new to the pod, we explore the world of product marketing through the lens of the women who run it at some of the fastest growing technology companies in the world. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. You're losing 30% of your deals to your competitors. Not cool. That competitive revenue gap is costing your business millions of dollars. So how do you tip the scale in your favor? Clue's competitive enablement platform makes it simple for product marketers and compete pros to give their revenue teams the exact right intel at the exact right time. Positioning, messaging, objection handling, and FUD, Clue shares real-time competitive insights in the places your reps already live. It makes it easy for them to contribute insights from the field. All right, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. Today, I have the pleasure to interview Jamila Calhoun, the VP of Product Marketing at Eventbrite. Jamila has also held PMM leadership positions at On, Audible, and a range of positions at The Guardian, American Express, and City, just to name a few. In addition, Jamila holds an MBA from Harvard and is also a very active participant in the product marketing space. She's appeared on numerous podcasts on Sharebird, She's done AMAs and written many articles. We are so lucky to get to learn from you today. Thanks so much for joining us, Jamila.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to continue sharing a bit about my career journey, and hopefully it helps a few PMMs who are coming up today in in their careers.
0: Well, I'm sure it will, and such a fan of the content you've already done and just thrilled that you can be on the Women in Product Marketing show today. So thanks for making the time. Let's start off with our question for season five, which is, could you share a time when you've failed at something and what you learned?
1: Wow. So we're starting off the bat heavy, (laughs) but of course, all of the various successes that you end up having in your career come from a moment where something didn't go well. In particular, I think back to one of the products that I worked on launching at where we were thinking about a new kind of checkout button experience for our merchants. And essentially, we have built up a really great go-to-market plan to roll this out. And as soon as we started actually having the sales teams have these conversations, we recognized that actually this was not quite getting the uptake that we really hoped for. Mm -hmm. And despite the research and some of the insights that we were driving to support the launch, it just felt like, how did we potentially miss this key insight and opportunity to maybe think through our product structure a little bit differently? And from that experience, it really became important for me to think about having a progressive kind of new product development cycle. Like, what does it mean to have the right level of insight at the right time for new product development? And how do you go through the stages of not just research and insights, but also prototyping, doing kind of smoke screens in market and other ways to really get that temperature check early? And I'm sure many PMMs can resonate with a story like this where you know you've got fast deadlines leadership wants to get some products launched as soon as possible and some of those steps you kind of skip and so i've become really good at thinking about super scrappy ways to get those types of in market real time insights that are just so powerful especially when you're right at the kind of dawn of launching a whole new experience
0: Wow. Well, what a comeback from that that quote unquote failure to learn something so important about the product development cycle and to be able to implement something that sounds like it's been so strategic and helpful throughout your career. So I'd love to come back to that and hear more about some of the ways that you add in those scrappy and rapid insights, but thank you for sharing that. That is a a really good learning. I've definitely been there too. I know many of you are listening to are probably nodding along that they've also been there, missed the mark on the insight, but that's an incredible learning and an incredible takeaway from that. I'd love to hear about your role. So you're the global product and customer marketing VP at Eventbrite. And I said this before we started the call, but I'm such a fan of Eventbrite. I'd love to hear you describe your experience there and just tell us what it's all about.
1: Yeah, I mean, Eventbrite is such a great brand because it really connects with what we all love to do, especially after the pandemic, which is to connect, to gather, to explore new kind of activities in our area. And so I've just found that there's always just a wellspring of goodwill oftentimes, with the Eventbrite brand, especially on our consumer side of the market, and for our creators, it's so important for them as they're trying to build businesses, engage their audiences in a whole new way, generate leads for their businesses, and so we have such an important role to play on both sides of our market, and... The really powerful piece to me is the timing at which I get to be a part of the leadership at this type of company. We're coming out of a like Black Swan event, global pandemic that pretty much took the events industry to a complete halt for a period of time. And here's a brand that really is all about the kind of grassroots events. This isn't the ticket master of the world that's doing these big stadiums, but it's those local events. And so at a time when people are even more connected to their neighborhoods, they're spending more time at home staying you know, in closer radius to where they are, not traveling as much. We have such a role to play in that. And my role there is incredibly dis- interdisciplinary and is really rooted in customer centricity. So on the product marketing side, of course, we're thinking about both the consumer and the creator side of our market. What are their needs? How do we ensure that the product that we're delivering is actually resonating with what people's actual expectations are and what's going to keep them engaged. Everything from the marketing tools that we're providing on the creator side to help them more easily demystify what it means to advertise on an Instagram or Google ads. And on the consumer side, we're actually thinking about our inventory and what's the content on our platform and how do we personalize recommendations so that they can find it. But my team also includes lifecycle marketing as well. So everything to kind of keep customers engaged and retained on the platform through our in-product messaging, as well as email. And I also lead our market research function as It sounds like you've heard some of my other podcast episodes and Sharebird content. I talk a lot about research and how integral it is to everything that we do as product marketers, as lifecycle marketers. And so being able to actually have a leadership role for that function, I think is so um, exciting to me, but also ensures that my team is really getting deep into the knowledge of our customer and that we can collaborate even more closely.
0: I love the way that you position that. And it makes total sense to me that all of these touch points are finding out information for the customers, figuring out how to position what is the best, you know, features that they really need. And then using lifecycle marketing and other channels, of course, how do we actually get the word out? So that makes sense to me to cover all of those different areas with your vice presidency. So that's really awesome that you've been able to connect the dots in such a way. And yes, for more Jamila content, geeking out on all the market research stuff, I've definitely did that prepping for this interview, but would encourage others to do that as well. You mentioned the the changes that Eventbrite is going through right now post COVID. And this might be funny to say, but I'm just so happy that Eventbrite exists. I feel like this is a great moment for any competitor to Ticketmaster. I mean, with the whole Taylor Swift debacle and everything that happened in that you know recent news cycle, that was just really coming to a head, but it's so amazing that there are other options and Eventbrite has such a strong grassroots hold on all of these event organizers. And I'm just really excited to see how you're going to be transforming and how you're going to be you know a big player in this space. It just seems like a really exciting time to be there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to me, it's all about powering, like you said, Main Street. And this is people from your local baker who decides to do a baking workshop to comedians who decide to put on a show with their friends for an open mic. And so that's really the type of unique content that we think is so special and makes our proposition from a consumer discovery perspective, really exciting. But also it means that we're making the tools that really empower the little guy to make sure that his events are discovered and seen and that customers are are coming there and coming back.
0: That's amazing. Well, this might be a good segue into one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today about one of your passions, I understand is working for companies and working for products where you're really trying to develop that product market fit. So getting in on that early stage, and I'm so fascinated by that. How do you approach that? So could you maybe share a little bit about how you go from conception to launch when you're asked to think about things in a product market fit context and develop something that you can actually get to market?
1: Yeah, I love these types of challenges because it really does bring to bear all the different skill sets of product marketing. It's where you get to deeply engage with your product partners, your research and insights partners, all the way to talking to customers yourself. So these types of challenges are, you know, really special to get the opportunity to take something from zero to one. And what's really different about these situations is that you not just have to think about whether or not there's a need and will people actually engage with it or pay for it. You also have to think about whether or not your brand has the permission in the market to actually serve that need. And how would you actually reposition your brand more broadly such that people would associate your brand with that need? Because sometimes you identify a pain point and you're like, yes, I would love if someone came up with this magical product that did this thing for me and I would pay millions of dollars if somebody did it. And then you say, oh, well, it's actually going to be coming from a company like Coca-Cola and it's actually a SaaS product that somebody's asking for. And you're like, actually, I don't know that that brand, even though we know and we love it and we we think of all the great memories of drinking Coca-Cola, but we don't associate it with launching a new kind of email tool for creators, right? And so when you're working from conception onward, you not only have to identify those true pain points, understand the competitive landscape in terms of substitutes, what is going to actually drive people to switch behavior, but then the other piece is how do you make it coherent with what your brand identity actually is And so in these types of situations, we're really starting with kind of really broad-based research that is just getting to know who people are, what motivates them. So heavily focused at this stage on psychographics before starting to go deeper into research that's a lot more about what use cases you start to identify, what kind of primary unit of value that people are understanding about a particular product that you may be proposing. And then the last piece is starting to think about, you know, competitive landscape, willingness to pay and those other elements. But if you don't do all of those pieces, it's really easy to end up in a situation to the story I was mentioning earlier, where (laughs) your product you could nail the pricing, you could nail the product, but the brand repositioning wasn't quite strong enough to, to make people switch their behavior. Or you could nail the product and you could, you know, nail the branding, but the pricing is off. So each one of those elements is going to be critical to making that kind of zero-to-one launch successful.
0: Wow, that's a really helpful framework. Let me see if I caught it all. So there's the understanding of a challenge that you're trying to solve. Does your brand have permission to solve this? What are the psychographics or maybe even going deeper into, you know, who is the persona you're trying to solve for? And then going into the more fine-tuned details of use case and all the things that this will solve. And then thinking about sort of that plan of attack, the go-to-market plan where you get out there. So I captured those five things. Is there anything that you would, that I missed in that? But I love the way you brought that to the table.
1: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that last piece is what most people focus on, which is actually the go-to-market and the usability and the product features. But to your point, and the way you laid that out was perfectly, you know, perfect reflection of what I was getting across. There's so much that needs to happen before that. Not to say that go-to-market piece is not also pivotal, but that's definitely making sure you have that upfront component is going to be the thing that helps you set yourself up for success ultimately.
0: Is there a point in that process that's like a go or no-go decision where you say we have product market fit or we do not?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I think that absolutely there should be a go, no-go moment. And often those go, no-go moments are not just about the product market the fit, but But also it's about what's the revenue opportunity? Is it large enough? Do you think you could capture enough to make it worthwhile for your business to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that cost benefit analysis looks different for every company. And sometimes there are great opportunities and products that you're kind of like, I wish... This other company would build that because it needs to be in the world, but we don't need to be the ones to necessarily do that. And I think it's really important for leadership teams to hold themselves accountable to doing that check for their actual company, not just in general, does this thing to exist, but do we have the right capabilities and the right risk tolerance, the right investment horizon, the right team to be the company to do this? At right now, right? And that's a really important moment. But I would say in general, product market fit is an evolving thing. If you cross that threshold where you say, no, this is worth it. We think there's the revenue opportunity. Our company can do it well. And you get past that no-go moment. After that, you really want to continuously set yourselves up to iterate through setting up a really robust learning agenda and making sure that you don't just launch and celebrate, but launch and learn. And so product market fit has to be a continuous effort. And it's not until you really hit that critical mass scale that you have that true confirmation.
0: That's so profound. It's this lens that you're looking at everything with until you reach a certain threshold, like you mentioned. That's so cool. I've worked for so many companies where we happen to have the tech to make product, but then we go through this discovery of, do we have the product market fit? But I don't think we've ever paused to ask ourselves, are we the right brand for this? Like, are we Coca-Cola trying to launch a SaaS product and really having that moment? So that is really something I'm going to take away personally. So thank you for sharing that. So we've been talking right now about, you know, this is really thinking about a new product coming to market. You know, you're trying to establish product market fit. How would you say that this Differs than adding new features to a new product?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest aspects that can happen when you're thinking about whole new products or new revenue streams versus a feature enhancement is people don't appreciate that oftentimes if you're thinking about a new product, you're really sometimes talking about a PL transformation. And that requires a significant amount of internal change management and sometimes organizational transformation. Sometimes you have to reorg in order to allow your business to support this whole new business line that you're creating, which is a very different exercise where you can actually leverage the existing rails of how your company operates, your existing accounting systems and your existing teams, even your existing channels could be leverage to help elevate a feature enhancement and get more awareness of that feature enhancement Um, and done a lot of that, especially in the past year at Eventbrite, as we've really invested a lot into kind of marketing tools for our creators, but we were able to ride the rails of our kind of existing infrastructure in terms of our engagement pathways and the types of kind of touch points we have with our customers. When it's a whole new business line, number one, your entire internal mechanisms might need to shift, but even your communication channels with your customers, you might need to get at a different set of customers or you might need to get at them at a different kind of moment of intent, which also might require a different approach to your marketing and your channel mix. So, you know, ultimately I think those are really important elements to think through if you're actually doing a true kind of new product launch versus the feature development. It's all about like, how do you find them in those existing pipelines that exist?
0: It's almost like with the new product launch, you have to think about it as like, you're kind of launching a new business and it happens to be within the Umbrella of the brand you're working on, but you need to figure out all the channels, all the revenue streams, all the product market fit, all of that to go forward. All right. So I promise I'd get back to this question, but we talked about in the beginning, you learning some ways to integrate product and customer insights throughout the development process. Do you see that this is the same within? the new product or the feature enhancement, or how do you approach that? What are some of the scrappy ways that you do it?
1: Yes, I'm so glad you brought us back to that, but in general, a lot of the things that you would do with the feature enhancement is the same that you would do with the new product development situation, but you probably add a few more layers into your process and a few more things into your toolkit. So that kind of foundational research of what the needs are, the biggest difference when you're doing new product development is you've got to go wider, so not just like, hey, is is this a challenge? Is this specific thing a challenge for you? You actually just more so want to observe the customer in their day-to-day and the things that they're trying to get done so that you're able to take a much kind of wider aperture to what the problem set is. But the actual kind of methodologies look quite similar. The other difference I would say is really thinking about prototyping. That's really where the rubber hits the road when it comes to new product development versus feature enhancements. Feature enhancements, like you could build a kind of scrappy version of it in your technology. You could roll it out with an A-B test. 10% of your population sees it, 90% don't. See how that goes. With new product development, the kind of, risk in market is much larger. So you need other, and the tech investment is much larger. So you need scrappy ways to be able to understand that. And so I definitely think the word MVP has been overutilized and it means everything from like completely fully fleshed out products to like products that are so bare bones, they would never have product market fit. (laughs) and so finding that balance of how to truly prototype something using substitutes kind of cobbling and experience together having people engage with you know a kind of imagination exercise, having them talk through how they would like it to feel, how they would like it to kind of flow for them. Those are all kind of really scrappy ways that you can start to put together some initial insights. And my last favorite one, of course, is smoke screen test. So you kind of sell something on your webpage But on the back end, there's nothing actually there. You would essentially put the product on the page to kind of see how many people click into it. And then ultimately you might on the back end, collect a Google form that says, hey, this isn't quite available right now, but... Thanks for your interest. And we're going to capture your name on the list if you want, if you would like to be notified when it's actually live. That means that you can get a signal from the market of just how much demand is out there and not yet have a full promise in the market.
0: That's such a good $100 startup idea. Just putting that up there and seeing how (laughs) many people are clicking and how many, then that's a great way to understand product market fit, like we were talking about. So I love all of those ideas. And in the prototyping, What's scrappy about that? Is it just that you're kind of going out and only talking to like three or five people and then sharing those insights really quickly versus doing like a full scale research project with 20 to 100 people or something like that? Is that what you consider scrappy, just the amount of people or the bite size nature of it?
1: Yeah, it's not necessarily about the number of people. So, for example, that smokescreen test with the landing page, there could be thousands of people right. clicking on it and experiencing that particular offer. But you know, the promise is not on the back end. Those kind of larger studies you would probably need to do before you even got to the prototyping stage. So, I think those kind of you know quantitative studies, the really deep ethnographic studies with a few creators or your consumers. Those would be kind of prerequisites to the prototyping phase. But what's really scrappy at this moment is avoiding doing massive technology investment. And, you know, in terms of the fidelity of the actual end experience, you're bringing it kind of to a much lower fidelity than you might when you were actually launching the new product or feature in the market.
0: So interesting. Wow. Well, love, thank you for sharing all those really tactical ways to go about that. And I hadn't heard that term before the smoke screen test. So really appreciate that one. Yes. Now I'd like to move us into the AMAs. So you've done a couple of AMAs with Sharebird recently. So this is going to be like the best of the AMAs, your top voted questions. I pulled a few of those to just get those insights for the women in product marketing audience and these were really focused around a couple of different topics. So obviously market research, which we've talked a little bit about today, and obviously is a super strength for you. And then also on establishing product marketing. So those would be from those two AMAs. So the first one really connected to that establishing product marketing topic, but what does your product marketing team org structure look like?
1: Yeah, I've had the fortune to be able to build new product marketing functions from the ground up at two organizations now, both Audible and Eventbrite. And I think the main thing to keep in mind is that every team structure looks different for PMM. And that's generally because it should vary based on your company stage, what your customer base looks like, and also what your product suite looks like. And the different types, I like to say, of like, organizations for product marketing are, one is functional. So sales enablement versus monetization, GTM, and kind of inbound insights from product strategy. The second one is more along product lines. So if you have a kind of subscription product versus a on-demand product, you might separate your team that way. The third way, which is probably the most popular, is customer segments across either really specific segmentations that you guys have within your business, or it could be at the macro level of B2B versus B2C. And then there's lifecycle is another orientation for PMM teams. You do it by acquisition, engagement, retention, different phases of engaging with the same customer base. So I, my particular team at Eventbrite is organized first by customer segment. So I have a B2B creator side of the, of the team and a consumer side of the team. And then the second layer underneath that is by product lines. So within our creator side of our business, we do have two different product lines. One is, of course, our base platform that everyone's familiar with and knows and love. And then we also have upsell products that are subscription-based for particular tools that advanced creators can opt into. And so we have a team focused on that particular product line as well. So hopefully that gives a little bit of insight into how I thought about it. But ultimately, it's about the fact that this is really What drives the differences in our sales cycle and our relationships with our customers? The sales cycle looks very different when you're trying to get a customer to buy a ticket to an event than the sales cycle of our creator side of the market. And the sales cycle looks very different trying to upsell a creator into this advanced subscription versus trying to get them acquired, engaging with the core platform. And so that's really the core kind of criteria I use to decide on what should be the structure for my team.
0: Ooh, that's good. I feel like this question comes up a lot on the org structure and how do you actually decide? And I hear a lot of answers around like the revenue opportunity or things like that. But you're right. Like there's so much within the sales cycle and so many differences. And ultimately that's how you will be effective as a product marketer is really understanding that end to end customer journey and that sales cycle. So I love that answer. That makes a lot of sense. So assessing that and really building the org around that, that's really great. Exactly. So I know you're fairly new at Eventbrite. You've been there about a year, right? Yes. Yes. Great. And so, well, This the second question is around how do you make a 30, 60, 90 day plan to be the most effective with product marketing? So what advice would you give going back nine months or a year from, <laughs> from, from today when you were at Eventbrite? What are some of the things that you did to be most effective?
1: Yeah, I think it's so important, especially product marketing being such an interdisciplinary and cross-functional role to come in pretty dialed up for those first 90 days. And so the first 30 days, I really think is a major time for learning and assessment, understanding the kind of current landscape, how you're performing against key KPIs for your business, what the product roadmap looks like at that stage that you're coming in and then ultimately who are the key relationships and how your org is structured around you. That's really to me like the baseline for the first 30 days and why I start there with data essentially, collecting data on the people and the performance and the research that's been done to date on my customers, is because that sets you up for the next 30 days, which is beginning to actually identify what some of the more kind of acute pain points or opportunities are to get a quick win for your product marketing team. Ultimately, the best way to ensure that your team is being collaborated with and brought in and that you build that great relationship with product and with the marketing team is to deliver value to those teams and deliver value quickly. So I often recommend in that kind of 30 to 60 day into the 90 day realm, you're starting to identify an area that's just really like glaring opportunities, low hanging fruit, that you can establish a quick win. And usually those are areas where there's no gray in terms of your ownership. So something around messaging, something around positioning, like very quickly, it's really known to be within your domain versus some of the other functions that we do that might be kind of getting towards the outer rings or boundary areas with other teams. Focus there, find something quick that you can get done, or at least to begin socializing that there's an opportunity and you're bringing a learning to the rest of the organization really early. So that's in your 60 days. And then by 90 days, I think that's where it becomes really important to start codifying what your Racy and team charter starts to look like and establishing some processes. In general, again, being so cross functional, the best way to set yourself and your team up for success is to do some pre negotiation with key teams around. You know, this is really the area that I think is going to be how we can add value, where we're going to see the best partnership, and starting to codify that across your organization pretty early. I think quickly, if you allow too much time to go by, Without doing that groundwork, it can become really hard to reset down the line. Either that your scope has grown way out of control because now they're like, oh, there's a new person here. They know amazing things. They can help us with all these projects. Or the opposite can happen where, you know, because teams have been operating without product marketing or your particular role for some time, they may have various workarounds that they've been using for quite a while. And so you want to make sure that you kind of own that conversation
0: early. Wow. Such a good take on the 30, 60, 90 day plan. Write it down, print it out, everybody. (laughs) This is amazing. I want to reset and do it this way. No, this was really great. And I love the call out about like at 60 days, in your lane like do something that's extremely obvious that it's product marketing and that you will feel so you're not like ruffling the feathers right away but you're yeah. adding value in an area that's really obvious and you can always take that and say like I find at many companies I always have to actually share what does product marketing do and how mm-hmm. how am I as a leader going to take this on and so having that tangible example right away about messaging or, you know, something like a launch that's really in our camp, I think is a great way to do that too. So that is really sage advice. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah. I think case studies should always be a part of your team charter. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like oftentimes we write team charters as just these kind of like educational decks of just, you know, describing what you do, but when it really comes down to it, you really got to show not just what you do, but how you do it and why that's important. And so I find like pairing your your kind of discussions around remit with examples and results, KPIs, that's when you're really going to start to see those relationships set up for
0: success. Absolutely. Yeah. An internal case study, but one with all the bells and whistles that you'd have with an external case study too. Yeah. So last AMA question for you, and I am super interested to hear your take on this too, but how do you distinguish different launch tiers?
1: Ooh, okay. (laughs) So (laughs) Well, I think there's two different elements to it, you know, and I assume here that we're referring to launch tiers in terms of like what level of support and what level of marketing you might give to different types of go-to-market rhythms or launches that you have going on. Yeah, And so to me, I really come back to what role does this play for the business and for our customer. So I usually divide it into four key levels and depending, you may not need all four, you may collapse a couple of them and make it only three, but these four levers I find to be generally true. The very, very top is something that's going to change your business model and is fundamentally changing your relationship with your customer. So these are more to the conversation we had earlier, Barry, which was around these big new product development, you know, let's say that, you know, Coca-Cola decides to launch their chips line, which we know they already do, but let's say that it's brand new, they're going into alcohol, right? That is fundamentally changing your relationship with your customer. That's a big business model change. That to me is like a platinum launch. All things involved, you've got PR, your full court press, you may be doing a co-brand partnerships. Everything in our various like marketing toolbox comes out for this type of situation. Underneath that, you might have something that is really changing your value proposition with a customer, but still staying within your existing business model. So, for example, at Eventbrite, like I mentioned earlier, we've always been a great ticketing service, but when we went and launched marketing tools... Right, that was a whole new kind of stack for our customers to engage with, and so our value proposition went from this is a great backend ticketing tool to now this is not just providing ticketing, but it's also helping you accelerate your growth and market your events too. Value proposition change, pretty pretty large treatment, but maybe not the full kind of you know Super Bowl ad type treatment. but it's still a pretty big moment for your customers and you're trying to drive behavior change, which requires a significant amount of reinforcement. So the campaigns are bigger, they're longer in order to kind of set that new behavior in place. The third level going down are things that change your product experience. So here I really think about, you know, we kind of reoriented the product experience around a, a particular type of journey, like the journey is changing in our product. Instead of you first do your ticketing and then you do your marketing, we swap the order for some reason, and you do your marketing and then your ticketing. Those types of things again require some education. The last piece is just purely customer experience changes, and those to me, you know, you may do a help center article, you may make sure that your frontline teams kind of understand the change in case there are questions, but you're really going to allow the person to educate themselves more in a self-service way about those. This is something where. You know, the account settings button used to be at the top of the screen and now it's at the bottom. And generally, I like to say PMM, we tend to focus primarily on those top three levels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, perhaps partnership or product operations or the product manager themselves might actually be dealing with the kind of things at that that bottom level. So, like I said, different teams may organize that differently. They may collapse it. Maybe you don't have anything really at that, that kind of top tier. You, you probably shouldn't every year because <laughs> these are very large changes, but those are usually a helpful way for me to think about the types of channels I might use, the levers I might pull, depending on the tier of the launch that I'm doing.
0: That's so interesting. Thanks again. I feel like you have such a different way of thinking about things than I've heard before in terms of, you know, we've talked about tiering before, but I haven't heard anyone describe it as the level of behavior change you're expecting from your customer, and so how mm. much do you need to give them to have that happen? And I love, yes, you're right. The platinum Super Bowl level, probably <laughs> not going to be every year, like, yeah. to be honest. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I really love that fresh perspective. Thank you.
1: Absolutely, and I will say, it's a lot of my perspective on these things comes from the fact that I am a. Strategy consultant by training. And so I
0: framework
1: everything.
0: <laughs> I love it. I can see it as you're talking. It's like, here are the boxes of this framework. Exactly.
1: There's actually a pyramid visual for my tears at the office. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. I'm getting that. I love that. Yes. Well, amazing. Well, I can't believe it, but it's already time for our lightning round and have just amazing. a few questions to close us out. But First of all, who have been your strongest product marketing mentors?
1: Yeah, well, number one, I have to say one of my former leaders, Abby Weinstein, she's now COO at Begin, which is focused on early development products for children and families. She's been an amazing mentor. She's formerly the leader of product marketing from Audible. And in general, I mean, number one, I'm looking towards her as she's made the leap to the C-suite and I'm so excited for her. But she also just has such a, a rich point of view on product marketing. And I've always found that to be super valuable. And then in terms of folks that I really just, Think have amazing content when I'm looking to continue to elevate my skill set. Tamara Grominski, she's very well known in the PMM space as well. And we geek out on segmentations in particular all the time. She's at Kajabi now as their VP of product and customer marketing. And so those are two quick call outs, I would
0: say. Love it. And plus one on tomorrow's content too. I'm a, a follow of hers on LinkedIn as well. So yes. love, love you guys, I'd love to see the two of you geeking out together on customer segmentation or any topic. So if you want to start, start your own podcast, <laughs> I would listen. I love it. Awesome. Okay. So this might be hard to boil down, but what would you say is the one thing that's been the most important in terms of growing your career?
1: I think it's really been about staying curious. I've hopped around functions and industries throughout my career. I've been in product, strategy, banking, and a GM and now product marketing and life cycle marketing <laughs> and so it's really about continuously staying curious don't be afraid to take sometimes those lateral moves that are going to give you an adjacent skill set that you're you're excited to learn about because especially as you're growing your career it starts to mean that you're going to have to flex into multiple different disciplines and have a unique perspective on business and the more well rounded you are the kind of more you know, truly indispensable, you kind of become as a leader because you're able to engage on the broadest and biggest types of problems that might come before the business from a new perspective.
0: So great. And then hindsight is 2020, right? It, it might seem like, what? okay, I'm making these different changes, but now that you're in the position that you're in, it makes total sense, the path that you've had and how every experience has really led to this moment and how, you know, amazing you can be in this, at this point. So I love that you keep it together and stayed curious throughout and hopped to all these different parts of the businesses. Absolutely. What about networking? Do you like it? Do you do it? (laughs) <laughs> so
1: I went on a journey when it comes to networking. I'm sure other people will resonate. Networking seems so fake and terrible, <laughs> especially like as I was coming up, people are like, you know, go to these big, like meet people farms where you stand there in a corner at a conference and feeling awkward and you're trying mm-hmm, to make right. a conversation with, with somebody who sounds important. And I think as I've gone through my career, I've recognized that actually, you know, approaching mentorship and networking as any other relationships that you're trying to build. Like mutuality matters, chemistry matters. Like there's some people you just vibe with, you just get along with. And those are the types of mental relationships that have been the most rewarding and sticky for me. And I've stopped trying to just chase the person who seemed like they have the most important title and had something to get me in the door at X, Y, and Z and more focusing on people that I just organically feel really great that we have really great conversations and that, you know, I take away something from every conversation that I have with them, not just because of their position, but also because we just have that kind of mutual respect and liking of each other's personalities and work. So that made it a lot less painful once I kind of got out of that mode of, you know, kind of beelining at the conference for the person that, you know, the VP of product marketing. (laughs) (laughs) So if you actually like what you hear and we will get along, I love mentoring people, but I always say like, it has to really feel organic and natural.
0: That's such a good point. Love it. And the next cocktail party I go to, I will not go up to just the person with the highest title. I'll try to find the people that I actually enjoy talking to. But yeah, I, those kinds of things give me so much anxiety thinking back to how we do yes. are <laughs> <You're> the worst. <laughs> uh, all right, the last question for you, why product marketing?
1: Well, if you couldn't tell from all the functions and experiences that I've had in my career, I really value spaces that are interdisciplinary, because I do find so many different aspects interesting. And product marketing is the most interdisciplinary field that I found that resonates with all of the various curiosities that I've had throughout my career, whether it's working on creative, which I love flexing that side as well. But Yeah, I also love my frameworks and my two by twos from strategy consulting and, of course, engaging with product and technology as well. And then being a GM, a general manager, I love thinking about the business, what it really means to commercialize something, what it means to create a sustainable going concern around a product. And so product marketing has it all, basically, is the short answer.
0: (laughs) So amazing. Well, Eventbrite is lucky to have you and thank you. The product marketing function is lucky to have you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your beautiful insights today. I personally learned a lot and this was a really fun conversation. So thank you so much, Jamila, for being part of Women in Product Marketing.
1: Thank you so much for having me, for creating this amazing space for women in product marketing and having these conversations.
0: Of course. All right. Thanks again. All right. This show is produced by Sharebird, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com.